You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. Now, Sarah, this is a romantic movie-themed episode, so cue up as times go by, contemplate past regrets, and strap yourself in for our discussion of two romances this week. First up, we're going to be talking about Celine Song's past lives. And then we're going to be piling on additional romance and possibly regret with the Merchant Ivory 1985 film, A Room with a View. Break out your handkerchiefs, blame the tears on allergies, perhaps, but we're going to get into it here in episode 385 of Seeing and Believing. There's a word in Korean, inyon. It means providence or fate. Do you believe in that? That's just something Koreans say to seduce someone. What a good story this is. Childhood sweethearts who reconnect 20 years later and realize they were meant for each other. In the story, I would be the evil white American husband standing in the way of destiny. Shut up. He was just this kid in my head for such a long time. I think I just missed him. Did he miss you? Yes, listeners, we're here on episode 385 of Seeing and Believing, and love or maybe just pollen is in the air with these two particular movies that we're going to be watching. We'll be getting to my watch list pick, A Room with a View, in the second half of the show, but for the first half, we're going to be reviewing a new release. This is Celine Song's Past Lives in which Nora and Sung, two deeply connected childhood friends, are rest apart after Nora's family emigrates from South Korea. Two decades later, they are reunited in New York for one fateful week as they confront notions of destiny, love, and the choices that make a life in this heartrending modern romance. Now, that's the official synopsis. I think I might take some issue with some of the wording there, potentially, but I'll be curious to know what you think, Kevin. You just came out of a screening this evening. Yeah, uh, I was unfortunately not able to make one of the the press screens. It was a little bit earlier in the week, so I'm fresh out of this movie. I literally uh, walked out of it an hour ago. Yeah, so, so you'll, you're still processing probably um, this movie and everything in it. So I'm curious to know, coming out of it so freshly, was this slow burn relationship something that you wanted to hold on to and spend more time with? Or did you find it kind of slipping through your fingers as you were watching it? Yeah. Um, so the movie's very first scene is this shot of this central trio played by Greta Lee, Teo Yu, and John Magaro mm-hmm. um, uh, talking together at a bar. And in voiceover, we hear the conversation of an unseen couple who are sort of like people watching and just sort of imagining narratives for this this trio of people who are at a bar just talking to each other, having a conversation. And, you know, they, they, they are wondering like, oh, okay, are these two people married and he's her brother or is he their tour guide and they're tourists here in New York? What's going on here? And they can't settle on any one uh, narrative that feels right to them and then Greta Lee's character turns and stares right into the camera challenging the viewer mm-hmm. and then uh the the tile card appears and I feel like to you to your question about whether this movie feels like it's slipping through my fingers I think that moment is the perfect note to begin the movie on because I felt while watching this that it was a movie that was very willing to challenge its audience's preconceptions about how a movie like this should go mm-hmm. or how they might have wanted a story like this to go um, and kind of confronting that and and then really doing something be out, outside of the box mm-hmm. a, a little bit. And I really liked that about the movie mm-hmm. um i like this movie a lot um and i'm curious to get your thoughts on that but i i think i it, it feels a lot to me like in the mood for love which is another romantic mm-hmm. movie mm-hmm. where 
you kind of want the the audience might want certain things out of the story and the movie's a little bit withholding on that and i think that's what part of what makes in the mood for love so indelible and what makes this movie a keeper for me as well. So uh, what did you think of it? Yeah, uh, I'm on a similar wavelength. And I think I had a difficult time getting my hands around it at first because I was expecting a very specific plot structure, which the movie also wasn't giving me. From the synopsis like that you hear um, at the top of this episode, it feels as though um, these two characters are probably kind of evaluating what led them up to this moment, but we spend most of our time with them in their adult form, kind of confronting each other and, and who they were and who they are. And this movie doesn't do that. It grounds you in their reality as two children who grew up together and then were separated, and then as two young adults who came back together and then were separated again, and then coming together for a third time for... for I guess what sort of culminates like the arc of the film, if not necessarily of their of their stories. And I wasn't entirely sure like how much of a handle I had on the film or what it was trying to do or what it was trying to say beyond the um, challenging of expectations or challenging of assumptions that you get in that opening scene. And I liked that very much, but I, I felt as though the movie was holding me at a remove for, I don't know, at least the first 30 or 40 minutes or so as I was getting to know these characters. And that's a very canny move on Song's part, I think, because it gives us the chance to get to know both of these characters individually and in relation to each other um, without them being fully and completely intertwined with each other. Like they're both still their own characters, even though the movie is about this specific relationship. And I hit a point maybe about halfway through the movie, maybe just a little bit more than halfway through the movie where I realized, oh no, I do like these characters very much. And I'm very invested in what they're doing and where they're going. And I don't fully know what either of them is necessarily going to do. And it's a very quiet surprise, and it's a very quiet usurpation of expectations. It doesn't feel as though anything earth-shaking is happening here, except within the mental and emotional lives of the characters that are on screen. And for them, it's everything. And for us, we're just sort of along for the ride, and we don't need to, I don't know, it doesn't feel like it's giving any powerful revelations about the nature of love or how any of that works. It's just giving us, this is a picture of what these characters' lives are like and what this relationship is and the reverberations of that relationship. But it doesn't have to be, you know, all fireworks necessary. It feels ordinary, but it feels ordinary in the good kind of way that is both recognizable and also completely new versus anything else I've seen. So I like it quite a bit too. Yeah. You know, I wasn't I didn't go into this movie expecting to find parallels with a movie like Rashomon, hmm. but I feel like this has a lot of, like, it would be a great double feature because in its own way, it's very cinematic in that it's about perspectives, like hmm. about how um, the way that one character sees another character can kind of, they can weave an entire narrative and reality around that person that is very much true to their experience and kind of what that relationship means to this character, but may not be entirely an accurate representation of who the other person is in themselves. Hmm. So there's uh, this late film conversation between Nora and Sung where uh, he talks about how when she first uh, emigrated to the United States uh, as as a young girl and left him in Korea, mm -hmm. that he kind of, in his mind, that kind of gave her the trait as she's a person who leaves. Mm -hmm. And then he, uh, you know, indicates uh, Nora's husband who's sitting on the other side of her. And he says, but for your husband, you're the one who stays. Mm -hmm. And yet and and then she rejoins like i'm but i'm just i am i'm me mm -hmm. i'm not that little girl i was that little girl and i left that little girl with you but i am somebody else now mm -hmm. and i think that's a wonderful again kind of 
triangle similar to the one that it's in Rashomon where every character kind of sees the same situation totally differently, not because they're, uh, they're lying to themselves or because, uh, they are completely delusional, but simply because their own unique perspective, uh, irrevocably colors how they see the world around them. And that's just a kind of a fact of life. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed how, uh, Selene's song kind of takes that same idea and makes it into a romance that, you know, has a much softer touch than Rashomon does, yes. but is no less complex in, in its own way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting because the first time I ever encountered Rashomon was actually like a play adaptation of Kurosawa's movie, oh, which was, yeah, it was, it was a, a strange play adaptation. It wasn't necessarily very good, but I think about it as kind of like more of a, a theatrical movie than a movie movie in some ways. Maybe it's the direct address to camera that you get whenever people are delivering their testimony or, or things like that. But it does feel fitting because Celine Song is also a playwright in her own right. And Nora, the ostensibly like the main, main character within these three characters, um, is also a playwright herself. And from what I've gathered, I think part of this movie is, you know, semi-autobiographical or at least draws on real life experience. And I wouldn't know necessarily which pieces of those experience are what Song has actually experienced herself or not, but it does feel very real and it feels very lived in. And a lot of that I think comes from just how carefully observed a lot of these relationships and locations are. Um, I keep coming back really to the relationship between Nora and her husband, Arthur, played by John McGarrow, who's just absolutely he's wonderful. He's such a generous performer. I love him and everything I've seen him in. Yeah, me too. And he's he's such, like the perfect supporting actor because he is very giving and generous, like you said. But there's also a lot of fully realized characters that he embodies as well. And Arthur is, is no different from any of those other previous characters of his that I've loved. Um, he's there and he has his own hopes and fears. And the thing that I love about the way that Megaro plays Arthur is that Arthur wants to be a loving and supportive husband to Nora as she reconnects with this childhood and, and young adult friends that she has lost touch with. And he is very open about how nervous that previous relationship makes him. And that's not the kind of relationship I feel like you see particularly often. Like a lot of the drama usually draw like draws from two characters who aren't being fully honest with each other. And here, Nora and Arthur are honest with each other and about their feelings and about the fact that this other person has come back into Nora's life and Arthur doesn't want to get in between the two of them. But he also feels kind of as though like there's there's potentially an interloper here and there's a lot of worry and the way that Megaro plays that is so understated where he's not saying any of that out loud but you know that he has said it in some form possibly off screen to Nora and he's just going to let a lot of that worry kind of sit behind his eyes and he's still going to listen and be a supportive husband to his wife um and I just I love the interplay and the turmoil that's going on underneath a, an ostensibly pretty quiet and almost placid surface he, he um he he and you get the sense too that arthur is doing this kind of almost as an act of will like he he is uneasy about it but he knows he knows that it would be wrong for him to become jealous or possessive um in that moment in fact he even talks about how again uh uh to weave in with the theme of uh, the narratives that we impose on our own lives. He talks mm -hmm. about how if he were writing a short story or a novel about this whole situation that they find themselves in, you know, he would be cast as the, you know, the evil white American husband who wants to keep the, the uh, heroine from her destined love. Mm -hmm. And, and that's just the story that he knows is kind of, floating in the in the ether around this whole situation and he doesn't want to be that person and he very intentionally acts in ways to uh you know completely not fall into that trap but you can tell that for all of that he does feel a little bit jealous and he can't really help it because he does love her and he doesn't want to lose her mm -hmm. and i think that's a really 
interesting, compassionate way to to write that character where he's not just either an obstacle on one hand or an object of pity on the other, but he's he's another point in the triangle, just as not to go back to, to Kurosawa, but just as the way in Rashomon, none of the three primary perspectives is privileged over the other. They're all equal. And I think what is really interesting about past lives is it's not like two against one mm-hmm. in this love triangle at any time. It's it's always three equals kind of trying to figure out what they want and what they think they should want. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's really interesting that Song is able to manage that balance throughout the, the course of the entire thing. Yeah, I think ultimately this movie is Nora's story more than the other two men within her life, although they're certainly very well balanced out. Um, and I, I I don't know, like, I, I keep coming back to just how much I appreciate how well balanced that is. And maybe part of that comes back to the plot structure that I wasn't fully expecting and wasn't fully working for me at first. This is kind of a movie of threes, and it's balanced on threes. So the plot starts with Nora and Song at 12, and then time passes like we literally get a card on screen that says 12 years pass and then we see the two of them at 24 reconnecting over the internet over skype um and then 12 years pass again and they're 36 and nora is married to arthur and that balance with the way that we see these characters in different moments in their lives and at different moments of forming their identity i think also makes this story a little bit more balanced than the way that it might have been if we had just entered these characters' lives at 36, knowing just the backstory from like some exposition. I think that that approach probably would have given um, us the ability to try to build up a lot of assumptions about who these characters are and how they grew up. And instead, we get to kind of grow up alongside them a little bit as the, as the story progresses. Um, And I appreciate that we're able to see both these characters in their whole entireties and then also the way that they build their assumptions about each other almost in real time. Um, That center segment between Nora and Song as they're reconnecting via Skype, I think, is a really beautifully constructed one because this is essentially just one long conversation that's taking place over many days mediated by screens and the two of them can see each other's faces but they're flat and they're flattened by the computer and they're both projecting a lot of their own hopes and fears on each other and yet there's also this chance for the two of them to connect hey song with somebody who left him behind when she moved away and nora with somebody who can give her kind of another touchstone back to her own home culture she says she doesn't speak korean with anybody other than with her mother. So her Korean is rusty and she's she feels more like an American than she does like anything else. And the two of them connect over like that missing bond that they had when they were children, but also over the thing that the other person can give them that nobody else can give. And that's a beautiful grounding for a relationship, I think. And it's also a very canny one because it's all true and it's all accurate but the two characters are still flat to each other in a way because they're still mediated by that screen. Yeah, their their lives their lives go on uh, always forward. That you know you only age in in one direction, and I think the movie is very perceptive about that and how um, a lot of the reason, especially that Hey Sung keeps seeking Nora out, uh, you know, every twelve years or so, is. Partly because he he wants to he wants to recover some of that some of that lost past. Like he he want he doesn't he feels like the the passage of time and her movement away from from him in time and space is is a loss that he he wants to recover somehow, and that's a, what a lot of that middle phase of their relationship is built on is him just kind of wanting to reconnect, kind of hungry to get back some of what he sees as as a loss and and yet um at the end of that that sequence where it's you know it's 
kind of the buffer between that middle phase where they're reconnecting over Skype and then the 12 years later where, you know, she's married and and he's, you know, got his own own life in Korea. In in a buffer kind of intermediate sequence, we see them both kind of realizing they have to move on with their lives. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that Song communicates that is shooting them uh, asleep uh, below a window and shooting something happening uh, on the other side of that window. So for Sung, we see a cityscape on the other side at nighttime. Uh, for Nora, we see uh, her sleeping at this uh, artist's residency and uh, out of focus in the in the background, we see her husband, her future husband, who she's about to meet, arrive in a car mm. and, and begin to unpack his things. Mm. And that really is a very elegant visual way for Song to suggest that um, activity, like life kind of happens while we sleep. Hmm. Um, things, I mean, the movie even gives it a name. It calls it Providence, that um, Providence and human relationships kind of, those those are the things that sort of happen to us or, you know, if you're a Christian, are given to us mm-hmm. maybe. Um that that we don't plan around they just it's something that uh we just in, we enter into it as as part of the natural course of our lives and that happens irrespective of what we thought our lives were going to be like or uh what we what sort of people we wanted to become and what kind of people we want to end up with um and i i think that the the film is very insightful about how um that just it keeps happening while we're sleeping, while we're not even noticing it. And I love that visual shorthand. Oh, man, I love that. I wish I'd picked up on that detail because that's not something that I noticed while it was happening, but it makes perfect sense as you describe it. This movie's really canny about the images that it puts together, too, in a very unstudied way, I think. Um, Shabir Kirchner is the director of photography here. And there is an image that I do keep coming back to as I'm, I'm thinking and kind of processing this movie myself as well, which is this repeated image of Nora climbing stairs. Um, we see it when she and Song are children and she's about to emigrate. The two of them um, walk home from school a pretty considerable distance and then their paths sort of diverge. And the last time that they do that together, he pauses and tells her goodbye. And then they both kind of turn and continue on their way. And his path kind of veers screen left, sort of. And then hers goes straight up a a flight of stairs kind of off into the distance as though she's ascending. And then we return to that exact same image, um, repeated a little bit differently, sort of in flashback, as though these two characters are remembering that moment, but they understand the significance of it a little bit better the second time around as they're thinking about it. Both of the two characters kind of pause on their road and then they turn and they look at each other. Um, And then there's another image much later in the film where Nora um, walks along a street and then ascends another flight of stairs kind of towards, you know, the rest of her life essentially. And that shot recalls the image of the two children as they're walking away from each other in a way without perfectly like matching or fully repeating. But like there's there's definitely some rhyme there, I think. And I think there's a lot of visual rhyming that's going out through the rest of this movie as well. It's It's very canny, but it's also not trying to beat you over the head with it, with the exception of that one repeated shot of the two children climbing the stairs and walking away from each other. Um which I think is deepened because that shot isn't also a perfect repetition. It's just a very clear callback to what had happened before. It's an interesting shot too, because, you know, in the composition within the frame, uh, by the end of that shot, you know, the, the young Sung is, you know, kind of in the bottom left corner of the frame and Nora, the young Nora, is in the upper right frame. So they're as far away as possible as they can possibly be within the frame. And yet they're still contained within those bounds. There's still something kind of tying them together. Mm-hmm. And Song actually cuts away from that shot before either of them get off camera. Mm. And I think that's a very intentional editing choice as well, just to suggest that there's always going to be something that kind of binds them together, even as they head off perhaps in divergent directions um, and I think that's some kind of a visual strategy that 
she returns to at the end as well, uh, where, not to spoil too much, but the final shot is of a character um, in a on the road. Mm-hmm. And the camera at first tracks with this character as they are as they are uh, driving along. And then the car continues traveling uh, out of the shot, but the camera remains fixed and suddenly seems like it's almost focusing on another car very distant mm. on a on a different bridge. Mm-hmm. And I think that, again, is a song's way of visually suggesting that there's a whole lot of life left for these characters to live. And even though the one that we've just been watching has kind of exited the film, mm-hmm. uh, their life will go on. Mm-hmm. And uh, all these characters are kind of in the same boat in that sense. And I, I really like how it, it she's song suggests the richness of life again, without in a very unstudied way, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. I think the one point where she does say it explicitly is whenever the concept of Inyun is, is evo- invoked, um, which is a concept that I had never heard of before. Um, the movie defines it essentially as like the, the ties between different people. Like if you have a connection with somebody, then that's Inyun. And then two people who get married essentially have like layers and layers of that that have built up possibly from past lives or just from previous circumstances. And it's left a little bit mysterious, but I'm curious to know what you made of that concept and how it's kind of folded into the frames of the film. I I mean, I I think it's an interesting idea. I do think it's um, the way the film kind of brings it around by its climactic scene um, it's almost like a Buddhist gloss on the virtue of hope. Hmm. The idea that, you know, there are all these past lives that people have lived and there are all these connections that they form uh, over cycles of reincarnation. And th- that can either be a, a cause for um, despair, like, oh, you know, it just keeps going and going. And um, that's that's one way to look at it. Or as one character says, you can look forward to the fact that there might be future lives where mm-hmm. things might be different. Mm-hmm. And um, it's it's a Buddhist way of looking at, at the world, but I think that virtue of hope is something that you don't have to be a Buddhist to really uh, resonate with and know to be tr- very deeply truthful about existence. Mm-hmm. And I, I really liked that. I, and I also liked how Song, again, you know, it is a big part of the film and the conversations that the characters have. But song doesn't put so fine a point on that sort of like, bam, here's the film's theme. It's mm-hmm. it's very, I don't know, I, I keep coming back to that adjective you, you you used of unstudied. I feel like that's true of a lot of the the shots in this film and a lot of the the dialogue as well. So it, it doesn't feel forced. It feels very natural. And yet there's a lot of artistic um, subtlety to it all. Yeah, a lot of careful intent, I think. Um, just a beautifully, just overall beautifully crafted movie, beautifully inflected movie. I think there are a lot of good and interesting things that we should just keep talking about, um, with regards to different characters approaches to the world around them, whether that's through hope or through despair. Uh, I think Song in particular is a character who, um, feels a little bit more adrift and bereft than the other two on screen uh, underlined by like tou is probably my favorite performance out of the entire film uh, he, yeah. he does like just his body language he just there are so many shots where he's just sort of he, it's like he doesn't know what to do with his hands mm-hmm. and just looks supremely you know at at odd angles with the world around him i i wrote at one point i wrote in my notes like he looks almost like a little boy um mm-hmm. specifically when He's in Central Park. He's finally made it to New York City, and he's about to see Nora again for the first time in decades. And he's wearing a backpack and looks very stiff. And yeah, like he he looks very out of place and he looks uncomfortable. And yet at the same time, he's also a fully grown man with a full life behind him and also ahead of him. And I appreciate that the movie doesn't try to make him into a child. He's not a childish character by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but he is still kind of stuck in the past in some ways, and that kind of comes out both in the costuming choices and then also in the way that Teo holds himself. It is a beautiful performance. And, and he, I don't know, he's just, he, his character is probably the most uh, emotional of the of the central trio as well. And mm-hmm. you just does such a great job at, at just really using subtle body language and also just the way that 
his character, like even his, the way he uses his eyes, the way his character kind of glances off to the side to, as if he's fighting off tears or kind of just squints just a little bit to suggest that, you know, here's a guy who's feeling a lot of feelings mm-hmm. and he's doing his best to put a brave face on it. But, you know, his, his, his face tells it all. And I think he's just, it, it's a wonderful performance and does so much to like bring the audience into um, the turmoil that he's feeling that of the three characters, he's the least comfortable probably. And probably a lot of it is he's living in the past, but also part, a lot of it is like he allowed, like he's got this, he feels maybe the most deeply out of all the characters. And so that's why uh, that's also part of it as well. Yeah. He feels deeply. I think, I think the other characters do have a lot of deep emotion that they're not necessarily talking about either. And maybe it's a testament to, song's direction that we don't ever really fully lose sight of that either so the performance i actually was thinking about probably the most here was greta lee's performance so this wasn't a mode that i'm used to seeing her in she's more of a comedian than anything else and i think that gives her a really strong sense of comic timing but also just timing in general and i keep thinking about the way that she kind of glances at somebody whenever something that they say takes her off guard there's a lot of like side glances and stolen looks and and characters kind of looking at each other and saying like is that something that really just happened and I'm not really entirely sure how to engage with that but I'm just going to keep rolling with it anyway because I am an adult and I love that performance because again fairly unstudied very familiar feelings like I feel like we've all had those moments where we've had to just kind of pause and look at each other and say oh that was weird why did it happen that way or why did that person say that thing and then it just keeps on going but that feels like a performance choice and a directorial choice that also just kind of helps to inform these characters and make their lives feel a little bit more rich rather than them just being the center of attention whenever the camera is fully focused on them they're also still around in the background and they still have their thoughts and feelings even when they're not the focal point yeah, I think, and I think that's kind of in in one sense what the movie is about is that everyone, all these, all the characters on screen, but also just everyone in the world, <laughs> is having is living their life at the same time that other people are living their lives. Everyone is living their life at the same time that other people are sort of looking at them and constructing narratives around them, mm-hmm. um, and that's it's not necessarily a good or a bad thing. It's just it is. And I think Song captures it. It's really great. Mm-hmm. I agree. This is a really good movie. Yeah. Uh, listeners, uh, definitely recommend checking this movie out if you have a chance to see it. I believe it's in limited release at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but hopefully you'll be able to catch it in a theater near you or at least when it hits streaming. It is definitely worth your time. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to talking about Sarah's watch list pick about another uh, romance that might have been when we talk about A Room with a View here in a second. Welcome to The Conversation. This is the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going. And Sarah, after we finished recording that first segment, I realized that I had not done my usual spiel about how people can share their opinions about movies with us. Uh, I feel like I say it often enough that I may not have to beat that particular dead horse too much, but listeners, you can hit us up on Twitter email or over on letterboxd to let us know your thoughts about uh the movies we talk about on the show or anything that you've been watching in general sarah we we've heard quite a bit from our listeners over the past week about those very things so what what was on our twitter uh feed this week yeah the the twitters were a twitter uh which was quite nice so dave lester gave us a shout out and said my anticipation to see spider-man across the spider-verse is through the roof see believe pod covers that here and he tweeted very kindly a link out to our podcast episode. He also said, love the pairing with RoboCop, which was the first R-rated movie I saw at nine. <laughs> uh, little of it anyway until my parents turned it off, which I mean, I wonder how first far R-rated movie. they could have possibly gotten into. It. I mean, like that, that scene where the guy in the boardroom gets shredded by 
a Gatling gun is pretty early on. That so. would have traumatized me for sure if I had seen that Absolutely. at nine years old. Yeah. Same. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the kind words, Dave. Definitely. Um, and also let us know how far in you got because I'm very curious to know. Um, we also posed the question, um, what's your favorite movie romance? And we heard back from a few people. So Sean Whiting sent us a response and said, gonna go with two sunrises for you. Sunrise, a song of two humans from 1927. And of course, the Before Sunrise trilogy. And then he also gave a shout out to friend of the pod, Elijah Davidson, um, for his book, Come and See, which helps make anything before 1930 appealing and accessible. And we actually had Elijah on the podcast last year, right about this time, actually, to talk about Jules and Jim and to promote his Come and See project. Before it was a book, it was also a newsletter, which you can also still sign up for. And, and it's still a newsletter. I actually signed up for Elijah's newsletter after we had that episode and have been reading those regularly. They've been coming weekly. He's all the way up to Sunset Boulevard, I believe, was the last one that I had in my email inbox. So it's been good reading for sure. Excellent. And I know that those movies go in chronological order by release date, I believe, right? Yeah, I think so. he, he does one per per year. So we're up into the 50s now. Uh, but lots more years to go. Looking forward to reading more. A lot of good cinema ahead of you there. Um, speaking of movies from the 50s, we also got a shout out from Christy Olson who said Roman Holiday and gave us a gif from that as well. So okay. good pick for a favorite romantic movie. Um, and then Ron Sturry responded with oh so many to choose from, including the first 10 minutes of Up, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Once, or My Christmas Guilty Pleasure Last Christmas, but what romantic movie can surpass the great Casablanca. I mean, <laughs> it's famous for a reason. That's a, that's a really good pick. Yeah, it definitely is. So, Kevin, do you have a favorite movie romance? You'll notice I didn't say romantic movie. I yeah. You you mentioned that uh, you you hinted that you might have been looking for something beyond just a straight up traditional romance, maybe. But mm -hmm. um, I mean, I already tipped my hand a little bit in the discussion of past lives. I really like In the Mood for Love. Mm -hmm. uh, Wong Kar Wai's uh, masterpiece is just, it's a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. um, I also really like uh, the David Lee Noel Coward Brief Encounter. Oh, that's a great movie. Like, again, another one of these ones, I think it's it's less than 90 minutes, and it's just so great about, you know, love, loss, uh longing it's all in that movie and what could have been what could have been yeah it's a it's a good one for sure yeah that's a great pick um my gonzo pick for movie romance is just the brief flirtation between ellen ripley and hicks in aliens just because there's some good movie flirting in there it's understated but it's there um my actual favorite movie romance slash romantic movie is probably paul thomas anderson's Phantom Thread, which is a bit of an off-the-wall pick, but I really dig that movie. I mean, it's it's a really... So one year, uh, my wife and I watched that instead of the Super Bowl. And, <laughs> you know, the Super Bowl, as you know, it comes just before Valentine's Day in most years. And I was like, I kept thinking, like, this would be a, a strange but very appropriate Valentine's Day viewing for all <laughs> you couples out there. Yeah. Uh, at least I how strange it would be... Uh, I don't know. It would kind of depend on the viewer. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I, I'm I'm fond of that movie, yeah. I am too. I mean, it's it's about the negotiation of a relationship. What marriage isn't that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't think I've ever intentionally poisoned my spouse with mushrooms. Oh, yeah. No, me neither. But, you know. It's Different worse. strokes, I guess. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Listeners, if you have any other answers for favorite movie romance or favorite romantic movie, we would love to hear from you. Feel free to tweet back at us um, over at Sea Belief Pod. And now it's time for the watch list. This, of course, is the part of the show where one host picks a movie that the other host has not seen. We both watch it and then we talk about it. Sarah, it was your pick this week. And as we mentioned earlier, you chose James Ivory's 1985 film, A Room with a View. Mm -hmm. Now, this this is, of course, uh, I said it's James Ivory's, but it is often credited to the producing... Blah. It is often credited to the producing, directing duo of Ismail Merchant and James Ivory, who are famous for other period dramas such as Howard's End and The Remains of the Day. But A Room with a View introduces its characters with 
the genteel archness of at least what I thought was a 19th century novel mm-hmm. as they a group of English citizens go sightseeing in and around Florence, Italy. There, Helena Bonham Carter's Lucy Honeychurch encounters Julian Sands' George Emerson, which kindles a romantic spark that she does her best to ignore upon her return to England and to a comically stuffy fiancé played by the great Daniel Day-Lewis. So, I mean, in some ways the, the tie-in seems obvious here. Obviously, it's it's a movie about you know romances that might have been, connections that may or may not be fleeting. Um, I'm curious, though, if there were any other, as the queen of the galaxy brain connection, <laughs> if there were any other uh, tie-ins that you had in mind when you chose A Room with a View. That was the main one. Um, the other possible connection was the um, strong central performance anchoring both of these movies. I, mm-hmm. I do think that Greta Lee and Helena Bonham Carter both have really good performances in each of those movies, although um, it's mostly about the missed connections and about the, you know, what might have been. But you did mention something um, at the beginning of our past lives review segment where you're talking about characters who see situations differently. And I think that there is a lot to do with perception going on here in A Room with a View it's not a connection that I necessarily made before watching it, but since you've given me that, you know, tennis serve, then I'm going to serve it right back to you um, and might as well run with it because I feel like it might also fit kind of that galaxy brained take on this movie as well. Um, a Room with a View has a lot to do with, you know, British niceties and manners and keeping up those appearances for other people and then also ensuring that other people are also bolstering your own reputation. Um, And there's a lot of chess match, like approaches towards both familial relationships and then also pairings in and amongst the people who inhabit the frames of this movie. And I think a lot of those social niceties are something that kind of keep the the structure of the plot sort of turning and running and it's also the thing that stymies each of these characters at every turn that they make um and so i think it's interesting to see everybody running around trying to keep up those appearances and then ultimately feeling the need to just go you know whether the heart may lead and i find that that tension is particularly fascinating here. So that's that's my galaxy brain to take. It's some of it is a little bit more retroactive, but yeah. I mean, you know, that's that's kind of the fun of double features is sometimes you kind of discover connections in retrospect that you wouldn't have, have seen otherwise. Mm-hmm. No, I I I like this film too. I think you know, I've said this on uh previous episodes, but one thing that I really like about about movies and maybe just stories in general is the the way that the the ones that I I find myself really liking a lot are the ones that sort of set up certain characters in in a way that prepares the audience to pigeonhole them or or to regard them in in a very um, arms like sort of way and then to bam bring something around that reminds you no these are people too mm-hmm. and. I got that experience with Daniel Day Lewis's Cecil yes. in this in this movie where he is and and it's weird because uh, for most of the movie I was just like this is this guy is too much in, in by by which I mean like this performance is too much I thought Day hmm. Lewis in like he's he can go big and I thought he was going a little too big I was just like man he's just so cartoonishly foppish and uptight and stuffy that it was impossible for me to take it seriously hmm. um until we get to the scene where lucy uh breaks off their engagement she says you know i i don't i don't love you I don't think you're capable of loving me. It, it's a pretty brutal <laughs> breakup, mm-hmm. to be perfectly honest. And, uh, you know, you kind of go into that scene going like, oh, finally she's going to dump this guy because he's just... He's the worst. He's he's the worst. And then uh, the way that Cecil receives that news is very touching. Mm-hmm. Um, that it you can tell that he is... He is wounded, um, and yet he can't really exp- 
pressed that full-throatedly, and so he's still kind of maintaining the veneer of uh, high society niceties, even as he's trying to collect himself and and kind of make sense of what is what has has just happened. Mm-hmm. And that scene ends with with him simply sitting down to put on his shoes. And that's, I think, where Day-Lewis shows why he's one of the greats is because he's not really doing any big shows of emotion. He's not really, he, he doesn't say anything. It's a totally wordless performance. He's just a guy sitting down on the bottom step, uh, putting on his shoes. And then he he reaches, he realizes that he's not wearing his pons nez anymore. And so he has to like pick up his spectacles and set them back on his nose in order to s- see what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And something about that gesture just was so endearing and reminded me that he isn't just the worst he's not just the obstacle uh he's not the evil fiance as we talked about in past lives how mm-hmm. john mcgarrow's character sort of imagines himself in a role that he wants to avoid and see so i think for a lot of this film is sort of playing that role and then in that one moment you're reminded oh he is a person he's not just a plot device and I liked how this film kind of kept doing that in its back stretch to remind me of those things. And I, I like having that experience with the film. Isn't it so great? Yeah. Okay, cool. That was the only thing that I really wanted you to take away from this movie so we can just pick it up and go home. <laughs> Well, it's funny because I, I remember when you said we were going to be talking about A Room with a View, you know, I knew Daniel Day-Lewis was in it. And I was thinking like, you know, young Daniel Day-Lewis, he's got that smolder like, oh, this last time. And, and, and I knew it'd be super romantic. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and I knew that it was a, a romantic movie. And so I was like, oh, okay. So Daniel Day-Lewis is going to be, he's going to do the smolder in this one. <laughs> So imagine my surprise <laughs> when he did not smolder. He did the exact opposite of smolder in this movie mm-hmm. and yet still uh, made, reminded me why he's amazing. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's a that's a performance that really like rewards repeat watchings too, I think, because you're right. He is doing a lot, but there are moments where he's doing a lot and he's not really calling too much attention to him himself. Um, there's a moment where... Lucy is dancing down a hallway with her brother, just out of sheer youthful exuberance, I think. And this is not Cecil's style at all. He's not interested in shows of emotion or in shows of intense humor, unless it's, you know, making fun of the way that somebody else constructs a sentence. He's a very stuffy person. Um, But he's walking down this hallway and somebody nearly like runs into him, like they're caroming off the walls, basically. And he just throws his hands up and he disappears (laughs) into a doorway, um, just backwards. And as though he's saying, like, I completely absolve myself of anything in this social situation. I'm out. I'm going to go read my book. And when you can all collect yourselves, I will come in return. It's a great gesture. And it's something that I hadn't noticed before. But it's fun to see just the ways that Day-Lewis just kind of throws those into the margins as well as his more over the top, very plummy line deliveries. (laughs) Plummy to the max. Again, I cannot stress enough just how how hard he goes in the paint in making this guy the stuffiest British guy who has ever stuffed. Oh, yeah. It's it's a it's a very fun performance. It also I, I'm glad that it was mitigated by that last scene because it was maybe a little bit much. <laughs> um, but I, I and I think you know it, it is a very arch movie. Like the um, Ivory introduces the characters literally in, in like. Uh, like a cast of characters at the beginning of a of a of an old play, like you know, so and so, the the cousin and chaperone of <laughs> Miss Lucy Honeychurch, and then there are scene settings that where there's a title card saying like, and they went to this place, mm-hmm. and um, it is, it's very, it's very stylized to the point almost of being mannered, but I think again when we get to the end. Um, those tile cards are beginning to not just set the table for what we're about to see, but also to comment on the action as well. And I thought that was an, an interesting, nice little directorial touch. Yeah, yeah. My favorite is the repetition of lying to insert character name here. Mm-hmm. The first time it happens, it just kind of feels like a chapter title. And then you get another one, not five minutes later, lying to insert another character's name here. And then lying to a whole list of characters here. And then lying to somebody else. And it's just, it's a great 
piece where the movie is almost commenting on itself, even as it's just going about its business and being what it is. Maybe that's a little bit arch, but also I find it deeply funny. I think this is a very funny movie. And I like that it's poking fun at the stuffiness of its characters. And it's also kind of in on the joke and able to truck in the same language that those characters are speaking to. And I think that that makes the humor all the more potent because it's not just making fun of these characters purely because it thinks they're ridiculous. It's making fun of them because it does think that they're ridiculous and it also understands perfectly well why they're ridiculous and why they are the way that they are. And it has a sneaking suspicion like there is another way out of here. There's a, there's a couple of other characters who don't fully conform to society. Lucy Honeychurch is one of them, but then you also get... Um, the Emersons, um, a father and son duo, one one of whom is explicitly described as being sort of a free thinker who just speaks his mind. And every time he opens his mouth, I'm like, man, you probably shouldn't have said that. But also, it was really funny what you just said there. And the movie is pretty aware of that, too, and doesn't spend too much time on him either, I think. I'm, I mean, I don't think I was prepared going into this for, for how much of a comedy it was. It is very much a comedy of manners. Mm -hmm. Um Having seen this, I really want to go back now and rewatch Whit Stillman's Love and Friendship from mm, mm -hmm. uh, 2016 because I feel like that movie takes a lot from this movie just in the ways that it kind of does have that sort of arch sensibility and the way that it very uh, deftly shows how people can use sort of the conventions of high society manners to sort of uh, turn situations to their advantage or to manipulate somebody or simply to speak their mind without appearing to have spoken their mind. Um, I think that that's something that is a lot of fun about A Room with a View. I really enjoyed Maggie Smith's performance as uh, as Lucy's cousin and chaperone, where she's const like the, the classic you know, self-martyring type who gets what she wants by just saying like, oh, I'm the worst. You must hate me <laughs> so that people will do, you know, like, you know, assure her that no, what she just did wasn't actually annoying. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I just, I think that's a really great performance from Smith. And also the, the writing of it is also, again, very deft. And I, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, good deft writing, really good performance by her, and also really nice to see Maggie Smith and Dame Judi Dench together on screen, mm -hmm. kind of irritating each other until suddenly they're fast friends. And you don't really need to see that relationship progress all that much because it's sort of in the margins, but the two of them traipsing around Florence, Italy, getting lost, um, Maggie Smith pulling out her Baedeker and then Judi Dench telling her, no, you don't actually need any guidebooks. We're going to rough it like all of these peasant locals um and the way that both of them are just so completely clueless about the context that they're both in and thinking that they're completely right it feels like a really good send up just of you know high society and thinking that you're more superior than other people who may not necessarily have as much as you um and it does so in a way that doesn't feel mean-spirited like it, it's still a it, it's you know the joke has teeth on it but it's not going to tear these characters down completely because they're still, you know, full people with foibles as well. well I, I think it's also telling that one of the last shots in the movie is of Maggie Smith's Charlotte. So, you know, spoiler for a 30-year-old movie or 40-year-old mm -hmm. movie. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, at, at the end of the film, George and, and Lucy, they, they do get together and, you know, they go off to Florence. Um, and... Uh, Lucy writes back to to Charlotte kind of telling them about all their telling her about all their exploits. Um, and you kind of expect like, oh, the, the happy ending of these two young lovers, that's going to be the note that the movie ends on. And it does. But just before we kind of get that last, you know, the, the lovers are together and all is well shot. What we see is Charlotte um, laying in bed reading this letter. Um, and she's not a ridiculous character she's just a person mm -hmm. uh and, and again it it comes back to the the same thing i commented on with with cecil's just like the the movie has set up charlotte sort of like oh she's just kind of an annoying type and then kind of with that last shot ivory is suggesting like no you you are not intended to 
laugh at this person and dismiss them. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciated that. And it's a directorial and editing choice that didn't have to be in there. Like if it weren't in there, you wouldn't necessarily miss it. But because it's in there, it does kind of encourage the viewer to reevaluate how they are seeing this character and, and the other characters as well. Yeah, I feel like the movie's peppered with with grace notes like that. I would say we're probably invited to laugh at a lot of these characters. We're just not invited to dismiss them, maybe. We're, 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 we're invited to laugh at them, but it's it's not a... They're, they're not... They're, well, they are a butt of a joke, but they're... <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's it's not it's not a, a mean spirit sort of laughter. We're not meant to laugh and dismiss. Mm-hmm. Um, we're we're meant to laugh laugh at their foibles, but sort of in an by the end of the film, we realize it's supposed to be sort of like in in an understanding way mm-hmm. um, that their foibles they're not they're not uh, horrible shortcomings. If that distinction makes sense, yeah, I think that does. So you invoked the name of George, um, but I don't think we've talked too much about the relationship between him and Lucy up until this point. And I think it's an interesting one. And I'm curious to know if it works for you kind of in the same way that Cecil just didn't work for you at all right up until that last point. So George Emerson is one of the two free-spirited men who have also been traipsing around Florence. Um, George and Lucy meet. They kind of hit it off. They have some pretty solid chemistry, I think. But again, it, it feels more understated. It's not as though there's fireworks going off the moment these two characters first lay eyes on each other. Um, Charlotte, as the chaperone, is definitely worried about two young people of that same age existing in the same place at the same time. Um, but I don't know that I would have actually thought of the two of them as being necessarily like compatible partners for each other right up until the moment where he kisses her and they're both just outside of Florence it's a hot day there's the threat of rain and they're in the the middle of a barley field and she just comes up upon him and then he walks over and he just plants one right on her mouth and then Charlotte sees her and all hell breaks loose um so uh yeah I don't know like it's it's interesting because these two characters spend so little time together on screen but I feel like they're circling each other for a good amount of time And normally I take issue with movies that have an element of romance where you don't get to see the two romantic figures actually with each other for a particularly long amount of time. But I think these two have just enough where it works largely because the expectations have been built up around them by everybody else around them that they should behave in a certain way. That when they don't behave the way that society expects them to, that kind of makes me want to cheer. But I'm curious to know your read on that relationship. Yeah, I I mean, I don't think their relationship would work for me if it were not a period piece. If it were a more mm-hmm. contemporary a more contemporary setting, I would have that complaint where it just it doesn't seem like it's the romance is developed at all. Here I think it it does work for me mostly because the film so explicitly is about how there is this very proper society, the, this very proper way of doing things. And so simple, simply the number of opportunities they would have even to be alone together and kind of build that rapport just is not possible. That's just not the way things are done. And that's part of the point, I think, is that the film is is suggesting that even in the society that is... Um, is very buttoned down uh people will find ways to sort of like burst the bonds and make big shows of passion or ridiculousness i'm thinking of the skinny dipping scene oh with my the, gosh i forgot about that with completely lucy's lucy's little brother and george and the 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 very jolly uh parson yes all go skinny dipping upon together surprising amounts of full frontal male nudity yeah i forgot about that sorry about that um i mean it was it it, it's a it's a very strange scene Mm -hmm. but i think that's again part of it's part of the same fabric as the central romance where it's not clear why they're behaving this way i think it's more just they want to be exuberant and so they will because they're afforded so few opportunities to do that. Mm-hmm. And I I did appreciate that was 
uh, the the way that these characters chose to do that in the same way that Lucy and George sort of just come together in a couple of really, you know, titanic, let's just kiss each other really hard for five seconds and then pull apart and then not see each other for a long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a modern context, that's not enough for a romance to grow. In their context, I don't know, I think it makes more sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think... It serves as a really nice contrast to the relationship between Lucy and Cecil after she returns from Italy, too. Um, She's clearly comparing in her head her kiss with Cecil to her kiss with George. Worst cinematic kiss in history? Yeah, probably. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's a terrible kiss and you get a really good piece of editing like immediately afterwards where you can see what lucy's thinking in her head and it's just a flashback to italy in that previous kiss and a thunderclap and i think that's one of the moments where the movie does kind of let its hair down so to speak and let loose a little bit and i think it works especially because it's serving to kind of undermine cecil's buttoned upness and inability to you know behave like a normal human being yeah and and i think it's this movie as a whole is sneakily well directed like it's it's Mm -hmm. it's very you know it's got like the the great location shooting and the costumes and all that um and it's tempting often to dismiss movies that kind of put all their effort into the production design as sort of like leaning on that and not really doing as much with um, you know, with the camera or with editing. But I think that moment you described where we do get that thunderclap where she has a realization while being kissed by somebody she doesn't love that she's made a huge mistake. Mm-hmm. And that is that's all in the in the in the cinematic device that Ivory employs. Um and I think there are little moments like that kind of peppered throughout. The the scene in the Florence Square where Lucy witnesses a, a a death it's very harrowing and mm-hmm. that's all in the filmmaking yeah yeah they actually switch to handheld camera for just a moment it's maybe a few seconds i think two shots and both of those handheld shots are incredibly effective i love that whole scene actually just because um you get some really good line readings um especially from julian sands as as george emerson when he catches lucy trying to sneak away as though she doesn't want to inconvenience anybody like she takes after her aunt she takes after her chaperone in ways that you know feel really true to life like it's it's a familial trait probably where she has just seen someone killed and she faints and she doesn't want to inconvenience George with her reaction so she keeps trying to sneak back to the hotel and he explicitly tells her like no please sit down and don't move until I come back and I can't do justice to the line reading so I'm not even going to try but I love the way that Sans delivers that line um, because it's tender and it's firm and it demonstrates that he cares and it also demonstrates that like He's seen her and he understands what she's thinking and he's not going to have any of her ridiculous sense of propriety shoring her up. He just wants to make sure that she's going to be safe from there on out. It would be easier for him to to acquiesce. It would be easier for him to be more proper and to say, oh, I'm sorry, please do as you will. <laughs> and uh, and he doesn't. And I think that, that sort of willful uh, slight crossing of a boundary is is the spark of what eventually becomes uh, a romance between the two. And it's such a little thing, but again, it's the, you know, they're, they're only like isolated small gestures that kind of permit these things to flourish in what is otherwise a very, um, very proper prim kind of social context for these characters. So thank you for um, bringing this movie to my attention. I hadn't had it, on my radar, I'd, I'd actually kind of put it off because I admit I was a little bit sort of like, oh, maybe it is kind of like one of these stuffy, you know, period dramas. So I was like, ah, maybe not. But I'm glad that uh, I was forced to reckon with it and see the error of my ways. <laughs> glad to subvert your expectations. <laughs> yeah. So uh, next week we are going to be getting into something a little bit more uh, 
uh, gnarly uh, <laughs> with our watch list pick. So we are we're going to be talking about the horror comedy The Blackening uh, for our new release. But to pair with that in an isolated locale that has horror leanings, we're going to be talking about Jeremy Saulnier's 2015 Green Room, mm. um, which is quite a film. It was one of my top 10 of that year. I think it's really great, but uh, prepare yourself. Not for the faint of heart. <laughs> Not for the faint of heart, for sure. Hopefully you won't swoon like Lucy does in, in this <laughs> when you see it. At the sight of violence. Yeah, yeah. This is a movie that I have been meaning to catch up with for a really long time, have been a little bit scared to catch up with it for a little while, um, just based on reputation and how gnarly I've heard it is. Um, so I'm really glad for the excuse to just sit down and watch it and stop putting it off. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I've picked RoboCop and then this two weeks, you know, two watchlist picks in a row. I, I don't What's know. What's going maybe, on? Maybe I should go with a G-rated film for the one after this one. But yeah, Green Room it is for next week. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. And that'll do it for this week, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. As always, Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast. Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing.